Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, uh, December the 22nd, 2022. We're getting towards the end of the year. We've been doing some annual reviews, evaluating the year and imagining the year to come, 2023. Unfortunately, uh, apocalypse is in the air. Just did a show earlier with Central European um, academic on the war in Ukraine, who is fearful that it will result in a nuclear apocalypse. That time bomb is ticking quite quickly. Uh, the time bomb that's ticking slower, but perhaps even more ominous, is the environment. Um, and one of uh, my favorite people who thinks about this stuff in, in a very profound way, spent his life thinking about it, is uh, Tony Hiss. Uh, he was on the show earlier this year in March. He has a new book out, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. And uh, he has many books uh, on the environment and on uh, place and our role in the world, including the experience of place, a real classic. Tony is joining us. Tony, have you had a good year? Yes, thanks, Andrew. My year has been well, certainly better than anyone in the Ukraine or probably in the environment. I know, Tony, it's you know, it's probably a bit of a dumb question to ask. And I know it's a hard thing to evaluate. And you get such different answers from different people. But how would you evaluate 2022 in terms of the the politics in particular of the environmental movement and of global warming? Well, it's a good thing we're taping this today and not a week ago, um, because by the skin of its teeth, it's actually turned out to be a very good year for the environment. Uh, just the other day in Montreal, 196 countries actually managed to uh, agree on the idea of what's called 30 by 30, which is a half step towards protecting half the planet. This is the idea of protecting 30% of the planet by the year 2030. And in fact, they actually expanded that goal to be what's now being called 30 by 30 by 30 by 30, meaning protecting 30% of the land, restoring 30% of the land, investing at least $30 billion in this conservation work and getting all that done by 2030. That doesn't mean of course that it will happen, but it does mean that it's now a globally accepted goal, which may mean on the one hand, uh, that it's easier uh, to see what's happening in, these, uh, in this area, or at least harder not to see it, uh, because the biodiversity question, meaning all the other species in the world, uh, aside from ours, has always been the uh, crisis that's sort of been in the shadow of the climate crisis, which itself of of course, has been in the shadow of all the other crises, like the terrible war in Ukraine and everything, and COVID and everything else. So it's been in the shadow of a shadow. Uh, um, so, so you bring up Montreal and this deal. Um, 
COP15, there's a lot of skepticism, particularly amongst younger environmental activists, on the effectiveness of these international agreements, whether they're Montreal or Paris or Doha or wherever. Um, where's the evidence, uh, Tony, that this will actually happen, as opposed to simply being senior bureaucrats patting each other on the back? Well, two things. In the first place, at that Montreal meeting, which lasted for two weeks, there was a lot of discouragement after the end of the first week, and it did seem as if uh, Greta Thunberg's criticism of these international meetings- She calls it blah, 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 blah right? Blah, blah, it's a good summary. Uh, was coming to pass, but then they sort of dug into themselves and managed to come up with a deal that, as I say, at least sets a high-minded goal which has never been done before. Before, they, uh, they'd always set goals that they never reached or only barely reached. And this uh, can be a way of at least putting this in a, uh, in a form where people will take notice. And, and it, part of what they've agreed to is that they will have to monitor their progress and not just pretend that it's happening. The Tony, um, is that, uh, one of the... One of the troubling things about uh, Montreal was the United States wasn't officially a participant. What's the United That's States' a problem? problem? At the very beginning, back in 1992, when these treaties were first agreed to, uh, the Climate Treaty and the Biodiversity Treaty, uh, President George H.W. Bush was scared of signing the Biodiversity Agreement, not because there seemed to be a problem in protecting species, but because there were worries by the pharmaceutical companies that uh, small countries where the biodiversity was would claim patents on plants and pre prevent uh, US biotech companies from developing drugs. That's never really actually emerged as a real issue, but that was what held the US but, back. But no, I, I understand that, but if, if the United States is not officially a participant, are they an officially a, a signator on this deal? No, they're not. There are two countries in the world that are not. The U.S. and the Holy See, meaning Vatican City. So that is not... So the um, tiniest country in the world and one of the largest and most important countries. So what do you tell us, Tony? I mean, it's... Say that uh, the Pope has been very pro-environmental and the U.S. has been act, very active as an observer at, these, at this conference. And also the Biden administration, uh, on the, one of the first days of its existence, uh, President Biden pro proclaimed as a U.S. goal 30 by 30. So the U.S. is doing what it can in this strange... But why? I, know, I would understand the U.S. not being a signature in the Trump regime, but why wouldn't... Biden just sign it. Why wouldn't they participate? Oh, it is signed. It just hasn't been ratified by the Senate. So this has to get through the Senate, which it probably won't. Well, not at the moment. But the good news is that people are forging ahead anyway. And in this case, it's not so much people, uh, uh, people's activities in protest pushing the government to do more. It's people just acting anyway. For instance, there was a big piece in the New York Times recently about a, a couple in Maryland named Crouch um, who lived in Columbia, Maryland, which years ago was a 
planned community between Baltimore and Washington, uh, laid out with, ironically, with a lot of open space. They began uh, not plowing their, not mowing their lawns and turning their property into a wildflower garden for pollinators, something that's a movement that's sweeping the whole Northeast and by extension, the rest of the country. However, their next door neighbor was infuriated uh, and brought up this complaint to the homeowners association and the homeowners association told them they had to mow the lawn within 10 days or face serious consequences. Um, it turns out something like 29% of the country are now uh, part of homeowners associations. Uh, that's like, uh, yeah, like this Maryland couple. But so I, I, I'm not, but I'm not clear on they, what, what's, they is, had this the a good or, is this good or bad news? They had the wherewithal and the perseverance to spend $60,000 on lawyers fees and actually got a new state law passed saying it, homeowners association may lo no longer prevent people from planting wildflower gardens on their lawns. So that's a big step forward and it came just because people did something, not because governments were telling them to do something. And that is really what my book is about, my wanderings around North American continent and finding people all over the place who are doing things to protect the species that we need to protect, by the way, because yeah, I, I, I totally, we're not, there, there's no debate on that, especially on this show. I'm not in any way a climate skeptic, and I don't suppose our audience is. But it's still depressing that we have to rely on these bitty lawsuits by one group or another, because, you know, when the good guys win, then it gets into the New York Times, but sometimes they lose, so it, it undermines it. I, I still want to go back to this idea of the U.S. not as a signature of, uh, of, of, of the uh, COP15 in, in, in Montreal. Um, how can it move forward without the U.S. as a signature? Maybe I've asked this question before. I still don't really understand. Well, it is hard to begin to accept it. But as I've been trying to say, what's happening is that people are just taking action even where governments are not taking action. All over the place, people at different scales are pushing forward, protecting things, protecting species. You know, it is a, an amazing uh, goal even to set a 30% goal at this point. The very first piece of protected land, Yellowstone National Park was set aside in 1872. What, 150 years ago. Since then, we have managed all around the world to protect something like 17% of the land. Now we're saying, let's get from 17% to 30% in another eight years. That is a huge leap. But people are responding to that because we've had another tradition. In addition to protecting lands officially like Yellowstone, We've had people who began to think at different scales. And that happened a long time ago as well. 1900 is the date I hark back to. That's the summer that a young college graduate celebrated his uh, degree by bushwhacking his way up a mountain in Southern Vermont, climbing to the top, 
shinnying up the tallest tree he could find, swaying there, he had this sense that he was in this one place that stretched all the way from Maine down to Georgia. Well, he was on top of one of the peaks of the Appalachian Mountains, and he had a sense that the entire mountain range and the land around it constituted a single place. That was Benton Mackay. 20 years later, he published an article proclaiming the idea of the Appalachian Trail. And within 12 years, volunteers on their weekends had constructed this trail from Maine to Georgia. The, probably the largest public works project in history, entirely created by volunteers. And now, uh, reaching beyond that beautiful accomplishment, people are beginning to protect the much larger land around it, just as an activity, not because government is telling them to do it. So you, you, you really believe that all this can be done outside government? It's, it sounds to me, though, that the, in particular, the, the Montreal uh, example underlines why government's essential, because otherwise everything becomes fragmented and sure we can always find inspiring stories tony your book's full of them and there are many people committed to making uh, the world a better place and an environmental context but there are many who who aren't there are many private companies there's the oil industry there's fossil fuel complex so it doesn't sound to me as if this thing can get fixed without major government intervention oh i'm not decrying that in fact i welcome it it's it's wonderful and overdue, but there are, it is only one of the essential agreements and the other is just people. Uh, and it's not, as I said, not just people putting pressure on government, but people taking the initiative. So what and needs to change I, in America? I, I've just been watching, um, I've response. just been watching Ken Burns's series on the Roosevelt's, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, as a Republican was one of the, the first champions of the environment. What needs to change within the Republican Party so that there are the votes in the Senate to get America to sign these international treaties? Well, again, it's people behaving differently. And yes, it is complicated, Andrew. I couldn't agree with you more. But what we're really trying to protect is not so much the planet as the biosphere. And that's in itself a difficult concept uh, because the biosphere meaning everything that's alive. And as far as we know, the biosphere contains everything that's alive anywhere in the entire universe. The biosphere can, consists of life beneath our feet, as well as life on top of us in the air. Uh, and in addition to the easier to see life that's around us. And it, the biosphere is almost as old as the planet itself, which is amazing. And it is a hugely, huge in extent because it travels all around the world, but it has this third dimension from top to bottom that is amazingly thin. Uh, almost all life is contained within a band from the top of Mount Everest down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean. And that's a vertical distance of only about 12 and a half miles, which as someone has said, if you laid out flat, you could easily drive across in less than 20 minutes. So we've got this thinness that we've got to got to pay attention to and make sure it doesn't get any thinner. But you, you're not answering my question on the Republicans. I, I take your oh, point. In, 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 I mean, how, how do you get to convince 
10 Republican senators, if if the future of the Senate is 50-50, how do you get to convince 10 of them that they should be jumping on board these international agreements? Well, I think it's creeping in from all sides. Well, where's the evidence? I don't see it, in, within the Republican Party at least. Are there are there low-hanging fruit? I'm, uh, uh, Joe Manchin seems to be the opposite. I'm not sure he would even be willing to vote for one of these agreements. Or Kristen Sinema. Oh, I think you'd find that there are uh, old-time Republicans who've managed to survive. Um, who, who, who do you think I, I could think be picked off like within the Republican or Senate, or for example? Would be uh, appropriate. Uh, but the other thing we're discovering, you see, is that um, the life around us is not uh, as uh, passive as we used to think it was. Going back to Descartes, the Western tradition has been that the life around us wasn't really alive. It was what Descartes called a vet machine, a machine beast acting only on reflexes. But gradually we've just been discovering that gorillas have thoughts, that yeah. elephants have thoughts and feelings, even octopuses. And just this summer, a German biologist named Lars Chitka wrote a book called The Mind of the Bee. And believe it or not, a bee, which has a brain no bigger than a poppy seed, has this rich internal life full of thoughts and feelings and emotions. So we're beginning to think, and it's a profoundly different idea, that we are surrounded by a whole sea of sentience. Yeah, we done. Uh, we did a show earlier this week with Martha Nussbaum, who has a book, a new book out, Justice for Animals, um, and a number of other books. Ed Young, who writes for the New Yorker, has an yes. interesting new book out. Yes, um, Justin Gregg on narwhals. So, so this good, good, this good. is I'm a movement. Good. You see it, Tony? I mean, are we seeing it more concretely in 2022? The idea of us yes, as one species amongst many. The implication is that if you look, that there's no such thing as empty land or a vacant lot. It may not have buildings on it, but it is teeming with life. So when we begin to think about converting it to human purposes, we have to make sure it still fulfills the purposes of protecting the life of other species. So we need to begin to, 20 or 30 years ago, there was a wonderful advance called um, universal design, which meant designing buildings so that people with disabilities had as easy access to them as people without disabilities. Now we have to think in terms of a more all species design. That our interventions do not prevent other species from, uh, from their own purposes. So that's a Yes, it's a brand new feeling. Uh, are you seeing but in 2022, have you seen other, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of books on that front, which suggests a shift in the zeitgeist. Do you see other examples of, 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 of humans beginning to recognize that they, they have to share the, the planet with other species and they're not remarkable or unique? Well, yes, I, here, here in New York, um, there are wonderful initiatives underway. One uh, had to do with the Newtown Creek, this begrimed, sludgy place in Brooklyn, uh, where the idea was not just to clean up the water, but to restore um, the natural functioning of the ecosystem by giving it pride of place. 
well, there's a, even now a group called the Natural Areas Conservancy, only to, to work with the still natural part of the city. And it turns out 11% of New York, believe it or not, is still uh, wild land. Um, so I see this happening everywhere. And, I, and it was my privilege to go around the country and around the continent uh, and make contact with people who are working on this basis uh, and their success stories. I'm happy to have chronicled in the book. So yeah, there's a lot beginning to percolate, um, but it is beginning to percolate. And that's the exciting news and why I was saying that. Did, did, uh, did you have a chance to read George Monbiot's new book, Regenesis? Um, and his I, thoughts I on farming. What, what is your thinking on the regeneration of farming and our meat-eating habits? Do we need to change in that front alongside sh oh, yes. the arguments you lay out in, uh, in rescuing the planet? Yes, definitely. There's a group called One Earth, uh, which is, I think, very forward-thinking, and they talk about three major goals. One is to rid, us, rid the world of fossil fuels. One is to protect the landscape. And the third one is to regenerate agricultures so that it too plays a part in protecting other species. As we know, we already grow enough food to feed 10 billion people, but we waste so much. So it's partly the way we grow it and then it's partly what we do with it once it's grown. So there's a huge amount that needs to be done there. And I'm glad George Monbiot is writing about that because he writes so beautifully and so- Yeah, well. he was on the show. He's uh, He won the Orwell Prizes. So you're beginning to cheer me up, Tony. What do we- Oh no, oh no. Uh, you know, it's my, my job <laughs> to be naturally thing. a skeptic, but I, I want to believe, I want to agree with you and I want to be optimistic. What do we need to accomplish next year? What are some concrete goals for 2023 to- to cheer everybody up on the environmental front? Well, I think uh, I, I think we have to move full speed ahead. There's no time to waste. Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone would argue on that, but how and why and when? What? Well, one of, one of the uh, achievements of Montreal was to say that a central place has to be played by indigenous people around the world, because in fact, they occupy uh, and have been the stewards of something like 80% of the still wild landscapes around the world. Now in Canada, they're way ahead of us on this. Uh, they have turned to their indigenous people. They behaved really badly to them as we did, but they didn't make the mistake of kicking them off the land. They're still there. And up in the boreal forest, this extraordinary landscape up at the top of our continent, which is still 85% intact, the largest wild landscape left in the world, the, uh, the nursery of birds for the whole uh, Western hemisphere, uh, a great carbon sink. They are, the Canadian government is turning to its indigenous people and saying, please create for us an entire second system of national parks, indigenous protected and conserved areas on which you will be the rangers and the stewards. You will be the mucklucks and moccasins on the ground. And there, in the next six years or so, they're going to double the size of the national park system because we'll have this parallel park system managed by indigenous populations. It's interesting. I brought this up with Martha Nussbaum, 
because it's another theme I see in terms of all these conversations I have with thought leaders like yourself. And she reminded me that we can't be, or she argued that we can't be too idealistic about indigenous people, especially when it comes to the treatment of animals. But my response with you is absolutely the Canadians are pioneering this, although I think some countries in Scandinavia and Greenland also. Um, but how realistic is it in America? Well, how, uh, we've done a number of shows on indigenous rights. We did one with a historian, Margaret Jacobs, on the history of indigenous peoples in, in Nebraska. Some of it's inspiring, some of it's very troubling. But given the politics of America in 2023, how realistic is that? It's trickier down here, that's for sure. But we do, for the first time, as you know, have a Secretary of the Interior who is in a Native American, and we have a Director of the National Park Service for the first time who is a Native American. And they're beginning to work on co-managing some of the uh, existing national park system landscapes with uh, Native Americans who traditionally have been the inhabitants of those lands. So I think probably we can expect to see some more uh, national monuments created in the next year. The Biden administration, although, as I said, in their early days, proclaimed 30 by 30 as a, an American goal, which was a first, have been quite uh, careful and almost gingerly in, in their approach, making sure that everyone knows, including the Republicans, that they are not trying to convert a single acre of private land to public land. So these all would be uh, on public landscapes, uh, give them new protections. But what about the role, um, Tony, of... Um... State papers too. Last year, there was a bill in the New York State Legislature to make that a goal, a state goal. And then we're seeing it in local governments too. So it's percolating in a way that it never had before. Yeah, and I celebrate that percolation, if there's such a word. Um, you've certainly spoken about government. One of the things that we've talked about this year and in previous years on the show is the role of private enterprise, um, new technologies, wind and solar. D does business have a role here or are they always going to be the enemy? Huge role. No, huge role because so much of business is, uh, has to do with having physical locations and need to have uh, plants for this, that, and the other thing. But now if we have this concept that when we build a new plant, we have to build on behalf of the other species as well as ourselves, that's going to make a big difference. And some businesses are already beginning to respond to this. A any uh, in particular? I mean, people often trot out Patagonia as the model. Are there other businesses that we don't hear about so much that for you are are models of, of, of responsible civic behavior? Well, it's just beginning. I, I really don't want to put anyone on the spot yet, but- Well, you're not I'm putting sure. them on the spot. You're putting them in the limelight. You're, you're, you're rewarding them for their behavior. Because, um, because it's so much still at the beginning. Um, but they're very much going to be a part of this. Uh, and, uh, and they're being, and they're listening for the first time. Mm. So, I, I think that's a huge part of it. Yes, of course it is. Uh, 
they're not the enemy. They're just um, in the process of becoming friends um, and allies because it's going to take everyone's efforts. And that's what people are. The other thing that's so inspiring is that people are looking around and saying, um, what can I do? Right. And, th and that was my there final question, Tony. Uh, a lot of people are going to be watching this. They're not government. They're not part of some large corporation. They want to do something. But is it buy an electric car? Is it stop eating meat? Is it supporting 30 by 30 or indeed buying your book or at least uh, <laughs> uh, my book trying to protect half the land? What can people do in 20, ordinary people in 2023, given that we're busy, most of us don't have the resources? Um, what, what, what is a... What is a realistic? Well, it depends uh, where you live. Thing, city, uh, maybe one or two things that people can actually do. There are huge week. numbers of things. If you live in the suburbs, as so many people do, this whole idea of pollinator gardens and uh, pollinator pathways is is a big new development. You don't have to uh, protect or convert from lawn more than a tiny slice of your land. But if you begin to plant native uh, plants with blossoms, um, bees will find them uh, and, you, and they'll jump from your garden to, to one uh, a few yards away and to the next. And it's a connected up pathway. There are people, here's an example of people. Uh, there, as we know, for, for years, there've been land trust groupings trying to protect small plots in different towns. Well, now in uh, Fairfield County, Connecticut, and Westchester County, New York, which are the most affluent suburbs of any cities anywhere, there's a coordinated, coordinated group of land trusts called Hudson to Highlands, uh, Hudson to Housatonic, meaning from the Hudson River to the Housatonic River. They are now thinking about projecting a goal of 50% of that landscape that very wealthy landscape uh, as per, to become a protected area uh, by 2050. That would be an enormous undertaking. It would require reconnecting all kinds of landscapes. That's part of what happens. You, you, know, you want to retain what you've got that's wild already. You want to restore pieces that were once wilder, but you also want to reconnect everything that's, uh, that's been severed by human development. And that's another possibility. It's something that has now been accepted on a statewide basis in Florida for the first time. So there's 49 states can copy that. Um, if it's happening in an area like Westchester County and Fairfield County, Connecticut, it could happen anywhere. So that's what you could do in the suburbs. If you're in a large, out in the countryside, there are many opportunities, of course, uh, of landscapes all around you. If you happen to live in a city, uh, there are ecosystems right here in New York that are being restored and you can get involved. In, you can get involved on any scale. You could get involved on that saving the Appalachian scale. You can get involved on saving the Rocky Mountain scale. You can get involved in saving the boreal forest scale. Or you can get involved in uh, protecting a small piece of land, uh, restoring the ecosystems there. there are, the possibilities are innumerable. Uh, and, and so easy to pick out. And anything that calls to you is something you can get involved with and other people you will find are already involved with. Among, I mentioned in my book that among 
bird watchers, there's this phrase spark bird. Uh, something, some bird that at some point in their life reached into them and grabbed hold of them and wouldn't let go and changed their thinking. And forever after they have been involved in that amazing word, world of birds. But it doesn't have to be a bird. It could be anything else. It could be a stream. It could be a, uh, a little plot of grassland. It could be a so-called vacant lot in your neighborhood. It could be a, a, a community garden in your neighborhood. It could be a, a view shed that you prize above all others. Um, there, the, the planet, the biosphere is calling out to us, I think, because as soon as we ask, what can we do? There are just so many opportunities that present themselves. Excellent, Tony. Thank you. I hope I didn't interrupt too many times. <laughs> I'm sorry if I wouldn't stop.